And now, our Father, as we come to your word, we remember that it is breathed out by you. We remember that it is inspired, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is sufficient. And we pray, O Lord, that we would be nourished, that our hearts and our souls would be nourished as we come to your word. We pray that you would use it to convict us. We pray that you would use it to correct us. We pray that you would use it to comfort us, to teach us that all we need is found in Christ. And we pray, O Lord, for our children. We pray for the children who are both inside and outside of the womb here. We pray for their future salvation. We pray, Lord, that the seeds that are planted as your word is preached would be safe and secure and would bear a rich harvest one day. We pray for their salvation in your time, O Lord. And we pray for wisdom for ourselves to disciple them well, to share the gospel with them, to show them the gospel and the implications of it in our lives as their disciple makers. And we pray, O Lord, that you would use your word to sharpen us, to teach us, to make us more like Jesus for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at John chapter 11, verses 27 to 37 today, as we continue in our study of the book of John. Now, we know why this book was written, right? We know why the Gospel of John was written. John doesn't leave this to our imagination. He doesn't leave it to our speculation. We don't have to guess. He tells us exactly, in no uncertain terms, why he wrote this book in chapter 20, verse 31, where he writes, These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Now, if you think about John's audience... If you think about who he wrote this book specifically for, who he had in mind when he wrote this book, it would have been Greek people. It would have been people who were raised in Greek culture. And the average person who was raised in Greek culture would have been brought up, they would have been raised with this idea, uh, with this worldview that allows for many gods perhaps even an infinite number of gods. The Greeks are actually famous for this, right? They're famous for all of their mythological accounts of their many, many gods. The Greeks were famous for these. Even to this day they are. But in writing his Gospel, in writing this account that we're studying, John sought to demonstrate that Jesus is completely unlike the gods of Greek mythology. Now, the greatest of the Greek gods, the, the god who is considered to be the greatest, according to ancient Greek mythology, was a god named Kronos. But while Kronos was recognized as the, the titan father of the Olympian gods and goddesses, he was a created being. He was not eternally this god. He was the offspring of a god who came before him, who was undoubtedly the offspring of a God who came before Him. And so you have this infinite regression of gods who are not eternal and have a beginning. 
But John has made known to us from the outset of his book that Jesus was not created. That He is in fact eternally God. The God who created all things who came into being. That's the point of John chapter 1, verse 3. That Jesus created all things that have come into being. Which, by the way, means He didn't come into being since He created all things that have come into being. Now, of course, there are countless ways in which Jesus is superior to the Greek gods, the Greek mythological gods, including the fact that He was real, by the way. He was an actual historical figure. He wasn't an imaginary mythological being whose stories originated with man's imagination. No, Jesus was eternally God who took on human flesh. And He could be seen and He could be touched and He could be felt. And one of the things that would have struck the average Greek mind was that while the mythological Greek gods were often cruel and, and cold-hearted and, and just altogether lacking in compassion toward humanity, Jesus was compassionate. He was capable of sympathizing with our frailty and our weaknesses as human beings. And this is demonstrated perhaps most clearly in the passage that we come to today in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel testimony, where we see that Jesus has been summoned, He's been been called by two sisters named Mary and Martha to the region of Bethany uh, in Judea, which is just outside of Jerusalem, not far from Jerusalem, because their brother, they summoned Him because their brother, a friend whom Jesus loved, named Lazarus, had fallen critically ill. And so instead of rushing to the side of Lazarus, we've seen that Jesus actually delayed. He he waited to go to see Lazarus. And He explained this decision to His disciples, telling them that He had something better in mind than Lazarus' comfort. And that is Lazarus being raised from the dead in order to grow the faith of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and the disciples, not to mention uh, to spark the faith of countless eyewitnesses who would see Lazarus raised from the dead. So when Jesus arrived in Bethany, Martha comes out to see Him. And she expressed her grief to him immediately. She was overwhelmed with with grief and sorrow and, and sadness. But she knew that Jesus was the answer. And so she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's what she pleaded in error, by the way. The error being that Jesus could have healed Lazarus, even from the other side of the galaxy, if he had chosen to do so. But then she rightly added, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She rightly believed that Jesus could still help, even after Lazarus had passed away. But she didn't know what he would do. She had no idea how he could help. She just knew that he could help. And that was what Jesus came to do. And He came to do it in a way that was far greater than Martha could have ever imagined, could have ever known, could have ever guessed. Jesus goes on to assure her that Lazarus would rise from the grave. And He taught her that He Himself is the resurrection and the life. 
He says, He who believes in Me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in Me will never die. And then he finishes it by asking her, by putting the ball back in her court, do you believe this? Now to say the very least, if you consider everything that Jesus has said in the passage leading up to the passage we're in today, Jesus has given her volumes of theological knowledge. (laughs) He has given her a theological mouthful. Is it possible that she understood absolutely everything that Jesus had said to her? right on the spot, that it all made perfect sense to her. Is that possible? I I suppose it's possible, but I think it's very, very doubtful, especially since her reaction upon hearing this isn't to go and tell Mary and the people who are grieving the death of Lazarus that they could just go ahead and stop their grieving now because Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the grave. Uh, Keep in mind also that uh, later on in 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 this chapter, in this passage, uh, when Jesus approaches Lazarus's tomb, she rebukes him in error again. She doesn't seem to grasp the fullness of what Christ has told her. Nevertheless, while she didn't understand everything that Jesus said, she accepted what he said. And there's a difference between those two things. There's a difference. She, she, she doesn't get the fullness of it, but she gets that whatever he said is true. And he's good for it. She trusted that whatever those implications are of everything that he had just told her, whatever he had just spoken, it was all to be trusted. It was all trustworthy, even if she hadn't wrapped her mind around it just yet. And so as we reach the end of our passage today, we'll see that Jesus joins Mary and Martha and the the Jews who are grieving over the death of Lazarus. But as we see this, we're going to see him displaying incredible compassion. But before we get to that point, John wants to make sure that we see the faith of Mary and Martha, even in the midst of their grief. Our passage gives us a picture of how Christ comforts His people in their griefs. How He comforts those who have savingly believed in Him. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 it says this, it says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The passage that we come to today is an illustration, a picture of that passage. The point that we should see in our passage today in John is that when we see the compassion that Jesus has for His people, we should know that we can draw close to Christ knowing that He can sympathize with our weaknesses and that He and He alone can give us the grace to endure. But we start by taking a look at Martha's faith. She's been given quite the lesson in theology by Jesus. Uh, and, And she's been asked, do you believe this? And John wants us to see her faith as revealed in the way that she responds to Him. So let's look at verse 27. Verse 27, this is her response to him when he says, do you believe this? She said to him, 
Yes, Lord, I have believed that You are the Christ, the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. You want to talk about a volume of theological knowledge? She's got a volume of theological knowledge. She understands some really important things. Again, as, as we've already noted, she doesn't understand everything that Jesus has just explained to her. What He's just taught her. He's promised her that Lazarus will rise again. She understood that much, but the only resurrection that she was even familiar with uh, as a point of reference was the resurrection which is to come at the end of days when all of God's people will be resurrected unto everlasting life and glory and all who refused to believe in Christ will be raised unto everlasting death and judgment in hell. She may have known that Jesus had already raised two other individuals back to life from death. But we can't exactly fault her for forgetting those incidents in the midst of her own grief. Since that's what we're all prone to do. In moments of grief, in hard trials, all the stuff that we are just not completely solidly grounded in is just gone. You've got to have anchors. We talked about that last time. You've got to have truths that are so grounded in you that you just you can let down the anchor and that's enough. But Martha is nevertheless a picture of true saving faith here. While Jesus gave her some complicated truths to chew on, her response is one that reveals simple and yet profound true saving faith. She doesn't question Him. She doesn't get quarrelsome with Him. She doesn't doubt Him. She believes Him to be true. Whatever He says, she believes is true. Whether she understands it or not. That's important. That's really important. Because the truth is, we're never going to, to know and understand every biblical truth. There's always room to grow. Throughout the whole Christian life, we, we, we don't get there on this side of glory. But, do we believe His Word is true? Absolutely. Do we have to understand it in order to believe that His Word is true? We don't have to have a full theological understanding of every implication of every doctrine. She just starts with the simple words that reflect this, this deep and profound faith that she has. She says, yes, Lord. Now, there are two ways that the word Lord could be used. Sometimes it's used in a very generic sense. Kind of a, in, our, in our language, in English, we would say sir. Uh, it, so it can be used that way. Or it can be used of a master. Uh, of, of somebody who, who has authority. And that's the way that she's using it here. The fact that she means much more than just the generic sense is made evident by the words that follow after these words. What she means is that she recognizes that Jesus is the sovereign God whose Word is always true. James Montgomery Boyce notes of Martha's first words here that she, quote, "...gives the basis of her understanding. The basis is the Word of Christ." 
And he goes on to say, this does not mean that she understands everything he has been saying. In fact, she does not. But rather, she accepts it, whatever it is, because she knows that his words are trustworthy. End quote. And she believes his words are entirely trustworthy because she believes that Jesus is completely trustworthy. Now, that's not to say that the words of Christ are more trustworthy or more authoritative than the rest of Scripture. They're not. They're all equal. They're all equal. All Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. Theonoustos. But it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the mind of Christ doesn't part ways with the mind of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't differ from the mind of the Holy Spirit. We don't have a double-minded or or a triple-minded God. No, it's all equally authoritative because it's all from the same God. If we're to learn from Martha here, as we should, we should understand that true faith, that faith that saves, is willing to simply say, Yes, Lord, when the Scriptures speak. Isn't that the lesson that Job needed to learn? Job suffered, and Job grieved over the things that he lost, including his children. And as he did, as he grieved, he complained to God. One of Job's friends even goes on to say, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. And finally, God shows up and He confronts Job. He challenges Job saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. The implication being, Job, you don't understand what I understand. There's a real sense in which God is kind of mocking Job for his unwillingness to simply trust in God's promises. Ultimately, Job realizes the futility of his own thinking. He realizes how foolish he's been by questioning God. And he says, behold, I am significant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, Job realized that he needed to quit talking and start listening. And that's not to say that it's wrong to speak to God. It's certainly not. But Job accepted the rebuke that God gave him for quarreling with God. And Job comes to the same point, eventually, that we find Martha in. And that is the point where a person is just willing to accept that whatever God says is true. They don't understand everything that God understands. And they're okay with that. What they understand is that God is good and that God is true. And that's enough. That's the point that Martha comes to in our passage here. The point where she realizes, where she believes that whatever God ordains is good and right. It's a place where one is willing to simply trust the Lord with all of his heart and lean not on one's own understanding. Martha's response also reminds us of the importance of our faith having very specific content. In other words, not just having a general, I believe, but what do, you, what do you believe? What is it that you believe specifically? And she has three things here, three, three things that she acknowledges about the Lord in the words that proceed. First, she says, I have believed that you are 
the Christ. Now, the Hebrew word for Christ, of course, is Messiah, right? Richard Phillips notes in his commentary, quote, In its fullest sense, this refers to the three divinely appointed offices of the Old Testament, prophet, priest, and king. These anointed offices served to reveal God's truth, offer sacrifices for sin, and establish God's sovereign reign. End quote. So to believe that Jesus is the Christ... To believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah is to affirm that Jesus is the anointed one whom the prophets of the Old Testament foretold. He was the suffering servant that Isaiah told of. He was the one who would be born in Bethlehem. He was the one from David's line who would establish a kingdom over which his rule and reign would never end. He was the promised seed of the woman who would come and who would crush the head of the serpent back in Genesis chapter 3. He's the one who would bring salvation to earth. And Martha, in calling Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, she's saying, I believe all those things. I believe that these things are truly fulfilled in you, Jesus. Secondly, she says, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, she may or may not at this point have understood the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't think we can be certain about her understanding on that, at least not yet, not at this point. But what we can know is that she had obviously heard Jesus, probably multiple times, claim to be the Son of God. She understood that this title applied exclusively to him. We'll remember back in chapter 10, verse 30, that Jesus said, I and the Father are one. She may have been there since that was in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem isn't very far away from where they are. She understood and she believed that Jesus was one with the Father. Now, this is a vital Christian doctrine. We recognize that Jesus' word is authoritative. Because He is fully God. We recognize that perfect obedience to God is only found in Christ because He is fully God. Only God can live up to God's holy standards. We recognize that Christ's work on Calvary is sufficient for the redemption and the salvation of all who believe in Him, but only because He was fully God. And that's what Martha believed. The third element of Martha's faith is that Jesus, she says, is truly the Son of God, even He who comes into the world. She believed that He came into the world. What she means here is she believes that He came from someplace into the world. She believes that He is God incarnate. That He is God in human flesh. Now notice, as you consider the content of her faith here, that all of these elements, every single one of them, is focused squarely on Jesus. Do you see that? That's the content of her faith. She believes in Jesus. See, being a true Christian goes beyond simply embracing conservative values. That's a moving goalpost. 
That's a moving goalpost. It has to go beyond that. It goes beyond simply going to church every Sunday. An atheist can go to church every Sunday. It goes beyond being sure to check that off of your list every week of things to do. And it goes beyond enjoying just a few things that Jesus said here and there. People like the golden rule. Even non-believers like the golden rule. As if some things that Jesus said are applicable and relevant to our lives while other things aren't. Uh, a good example of that, unregenerate people really love and really appreciate uh, when, when Jesus said, judge not lest ye be judged. And, and they love to quote those words, but only when they're trying to shout down Christians who are telling them that they're in sin. But if they would read those words in the fuller context, what they'd see is that Jesus wasn't saying that we shouldn't worry about the splinter in our neighbor's eye. Rather, He was saying that we shouldn't address the splinter in our neighbor's eye if we have the same problem ourselves. In other words, we're not to judge hypocritically. But if you look at the full statement that Jesus makes, the parable, the, the, the illustration that Jesus gives there, it ends with the splinter in the neighbor's eye being addressed. So Jesus was clearly not saying, mind your own business and don't judge anybody. Don't tell anybody that they're in sin. He clearly wasn't saying that. So you can't take just a few words of Jesus here and there and call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. As some have noted, You've probably heard this uh, illustration. Jesus' words, the, the words of the Bible, aren't a bag of trail mix, you know, where you take what you like, the M&Ms, and you leave the nasty stuff for everybody else. You know, leave the raisins for mom or something. You know, no, that's not how it works. Being a Christian starts by coming to Jesus, by looking to His Word, and by believing that whatever He says is true. Whether we understand it or not, understanding will grow. But it starts by believing whatever He says, whatever God says in His Word, whatever Jesus says, it's true. Whether I understand it or not. And that leads us to walk in obedience to Him and to bear much good fruit. As Matthew Henry once wrote, faith is an echo to divine revelation returns the same words, and resolves to abide by them. In other words, when, when we're talking about an echo to divine revelation, if somebody asks you, what do you believe? You can quote verbatim from Scripture. You're just echoing what it says. Returns the same words and resolves to abide by them. All this is to say that Martha gives us a clear and beautiful picture of what it means to believe savingly in Jesus. It doesn't mean that you understand absolutely everything. It simply means that you believe that God's Word is true. And more specifically, and more, perhaps especially, that you believe what the Bible teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you live your life in light of those truths and the promises that God has made. And for Martha... That was enough. That was sufficient. She found comfort. She found hope in His promises. Even if she didn't understand all the implications and all the details about how those promises would work out in the end. But the question that forces us to ask ourselves 
is do you believe God's Word? Now some people will just give kind of an intellectual nod to it. Yeah, I believe what God says, but are you living by it? Because that's really the test of what you believe. And your attitude towards Scripture is going to be a reflection of your attitude toward God. If God were to appear right in front of you and say anything to you, it would be exactly what His Word says. And your attitude, therefore, toward His Word is the attitude that you have toward God Himself. So do you believe His promises? How about this one, which we saw back in chapter 6, verse 37. The one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast out. What about his words in chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, where he said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you believe his promises? Do you believe what his word says? Martha gives us a beautiful picture of saving faith. Martha's sister Mary also gives us a picture of true saving faith, though. Let's continue by looking at verses 28 to 32. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So, Martha had gone out to meet Jesus as he was coming into Bethany. And as she went out to meet Jesus, Mary had stayed home with those who had been there to console her and to to grieve and to mourn with her. We don't read of a place where Jesus told Martha to go and get Mary, uh, but it's perhaps implied here by Martha's words, the teacher is here and calling for you. Think about those words for a minute. The teacher is here and is calling for you. Could there be more wonderful words than those for the person who is grieving? Now, some people get hung up on the fact that Martha has referred to Jesus as teacher rather than as Lord or maybe as um, rabbi. But Jesus is a teacher, isn't he? He is. He's our teacher too. And some of the most important lessons that he has to teach us are lessons that take place in the context of grieving. Lessons that take place when we're hurting. Lessons that take place when we feel like we're in the valley of the shadow of death. And in those times, the Lord Jesus is there. And he calls for you to find peace and strength and comfort In Him, He calls for you to come and learn from Him in those moments. Now, it seems that Jesus probably stayed on the outskirts of town, 
because he knew that the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, which isn't that far away, had sought to kill him, and many others who were there probably knew it too. So if he had come in, perhaps he stayed away because if he had come in, it would have been a distraction, uh, a negative distraction for those who were grieving. You know, we aren't told exactly why he remains outside of town, but Martha has to tell Mary secretly that Jesus is calling for her. But what John is really trying to, to get us to see here is not all these other details that we've kind of been speculating on. What he wants us to see is the response of Mary. He wants us to see how she reacts when he calls. How quickly she drops everything to go to Jesus. In one sense, this is a test of her faith. Jesus kind of tested Martha's faith by asking, do you believe do you believe a, these, these propositions I've given you? But in Mary's case, he tests her faith by waiting outside of town for her to respond to his call. And she wastes no time. She doesn't delay. She hurries out to meet with Jesus. John wants us to see this beautiful picture of her devotion. The devotion that true faith in the Lord Jesus has. It's a devotion that puts Jesus above and beyond every earthly concern and every earthly obligation. So Martha's test really pertained to the content of her faith. It, it was dealing with doctrine. Mary's test really pertained to what her faith drove her to do. Her deeds right? True faith includes both. Doctrine and deeds. Belief and behavior. There's a connection there. There's an unbreakable connection there when it comes to true faith. But we must see that Mary's faith is also a faith that has not been swayed or influenced by her peers who don't feel the same way about Jesus that she does. Being a friend with Jesus a friend of Jesus with so many others around who are perhaps hostile to Jesus, that was risky for Mary. There was something to be lost there for Mary. The people knew that their religious leaders wanted to murder Jesus, and maybe they wouldn't have minded all that much if they did. But Mary, her faith wasn't swayed. She was no less... Faithful, She was no less devoted to Jesus, despite the fact that being so faithfully devoted to Jesus was risky. I think it's safe to say that many people today are inclined to keep their distance from Jesus for the same reason. Because perhaps it seems, maybe it really is, truly risky to align too much with Jesus. Don't you think we see that in our world today? People claiming to be Christians and yet kind of keeping their distance from some of the things that he taught. Claiming to be a Christian, a real, bona fide, Bible-believing Christian in our day is dangerous. There's risk. It, it didn't used to be. It hasn't always been this way. But the culture around us has drifted and drifted further and further away from having a willingness to at least tolerate Christians. And yet, He nevertheless calls us. He calls us every week to gather. 
He calls us every week to pray together and for one another. He calls us every week to sit under the preaching of His Word. He calls us every week to sing praises to Him and to partake of the ordinances. The question is, how quick are you to come? How high is Jesus on your list of priorities? Will you still follow Jesus if it's costly? If it's risky? Will you still be devoted, faithfully devoted to Jesus if it might cost you? Is there a point where you would stop following Jesus because it's just too risky? There's too much to lose. I pray that your answer there would be no. I pray that your answer there would be, I will be faithful to him unto death by his grace. Finally, Mary's faith is a faith that sees and believes, truly believes, in the sufficiency of Jesus. She sees and she truly believes that everything she needs in that moment is going to be found in Him. If comfort was her greatest need, and I imagine that's what her greatest need was in the moment, she knew that she could find it in Jesus. And so she, she comes to Jesus. She falls at His feet. And, and she says to Jesus, similarly to, uh, to Martha, she says, Lord, if, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a cry for comfort. It, it's similar to what Martha said. And yet, she has a different need. Different, different things that, are, that, that she's looking for than Martha. She humbly falls at His feet instantly. Now what's interesting to note is that Mary's mentioned in three passages. And in every single one of those passages, she's in the same place. At Jesus' feet. Being at Jesus' feet is her way of worshiping and expressing faithful devotion to Him. And so what we see is that even in her grief, she's obedient and quick to worship Jesus. And that's what gives her peace and comfort in her grieving. Friends, this faith that we see in Martha and Mary is the same faith that you and I are invited to have. It's a faith that will persist through hardship. It's a faith that knows to seek and obey Jesus when we feel like we're in the darkness. Knowing and believing that He's here with us. Knowing and believing that He calls for us to draw near. Knowing and believing that He is sufficient. That Jesus is sufficient for every need that we have. That's the faith that we're called to. The fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man is what makes all the difference. The fact that He's fully man means that He, he understands, he, he knows and can, He can sympathize with our weaknesses and the things that trouble us. The fact that He's fully God means that He's able to meet every need that we have. He can not only sympathize with our trials and troubles as a man, but as God, He has the power and the wisdom to do something about it. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's all-wise. Who would you trust more with your troubles, with your sorrows, with your griefs and all your worldly cares? Certainly not ourselves. 
I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not all knowing. I'm not all wise. I'm not all powerful. But I believe that He is. Do you? If you do, then you go to Him in your times of grief and sorrow. The clear application here is in the words of Charles Spurgeon that, quote, if you feel incapable, throw yourself upon the infinite capacity of God. End quote. Christ is sufficient. If He could bear the weight of our sins, it is nothing for Him to bear the weight of our burdens, our sorrows, and our griefs. Now we see Jesus' response to her in the verses that follow. Let's look at verses 33 to 35. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now the Greek word in verse 33 that gets translated deeply moved it's an interesting word. That's a key word in this text. It's a term that actually indicates uh, indignation. It comes from the word uh, that means to snort with anger, kind of like an irritated horse would snort with anger, or a boar, or whatever kind of animal. The question then is, what could possibly have caused Jesus to feel that way? What could possibly have caused him to feel indignant, to feel like he could snort with anger. And I believe the answer is death. Death is the wage of sin. De death is the opposite of what's found in Jesus. Jesus offers life. Death is his enemy. And it's your enemy. And it's my enemy too. And it was the enemy of Lazarus. And in that moment, death seemed to be triumphant. In that moment, it was the enemy of Lazarus, of Mary, of Martha, and of all these people who are grieving the death of Lazarus. Jesus knew that He was going to do something about it. He knew that He had come to raise Lazarus from the grave. And yet, first... He joins them in their grief. He wept with them. A.W. Pink notes in, in his commentary on John, he says, quote, Three times in the New Testament we read of the Lord Jesus weeping. Here, over Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and in Gethsemane. Each time his tears were connected with the effects or consequences of sin. End quote. See, Jesus doesn't just hate sin itself. He does hate sin, but He also hates the effects of sin. He hates what it has done to the world. He hates what it can do to His people. One day, He's promised, and this is again where we ask ourselves, do we believe this promise? One day, He's promised that He will defeat sin altogether. It will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. We read about this in Revelation 21, verse 4, which tells us that in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. 
What a glorious day that's going to be. What a contrast between that day which is to come and the day that was taking place here in this passage. No wonder Jesus was deeply moved, perhaps indignant. And no wonder He was so moved with emotion that He wept. He knew that these people who were grieving, were about to have their sorrow turned into joy. They were about to have their mourning turned into dancing. Kind of like Psalm 30, which we saw last week. And yet, He wept. He wept. This demonstrates for us that it's not only not sinful to feel sorrow and to grieve, but it's perfectly normal and can even be a righteous thing to do. It shows us that there's nothing inherently sinful or nothing inherently even strange about feeling the crushing weight of loss. Jesus isn't cold. He's not unfeeling. He's not stoic about the things that rightly cause His people to feel sorrows and to feel grief. Now keep in mind, something else Scripture tells us, that Jesus never changes The author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so when you feel grief, or when you're crushed by troubles to the point of despair, you can do what Mary and Martha did. You can turn to Him, knowing that He can sympathize with the emotions and the feelings and the sorrows and the burdens that we experience Even though now He reigns over His kingdom from the Father's right hand, His heart is the same toward His people now as it was then. He doesn't change. And so, as the song goes, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. We have a mediator. We have a God who cares deeply, deeply for us and who invites us to cast our burdens upon Him and who's even willing to enter into our grieving with us. Jesus wept. But He didn't despair. He had the power to remedy the situation. And His power and His glory were about to be put on full display. But first, He enters into the grief, the burden of His people. Now it's... This verse is pretty famous. Verse 35 here is pretty well known. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Yes and no. It's actually tied for being the shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 is also only two words. And if you're looking at the Greek, it's actually shorter than Jesus wept. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says this, ironically, Rejoice always. How ironic is that? And yet, these two ideas aren't contradictory. Paul instructed us, he summarized it nicely in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's what Jesus does here. The perfect fulfillment 
of God's holy standard. And if we are to become more like Jesus, friends, then we too should be able to do this. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. We should be willing to strive to be men and women who out of compassion and sympathy are able to enter into the suffering and the griefs of others. Not only able, but willing. What do you say to somebody who's grieving? What do you say to somebody who's at the absolute depths of despair? Well, sometimes you say nothing. Jesus doesn't say anything here. His actions speak for themselves, right? But if you feel like you need to say something, it could be as simple as saying something like, may the Lord Jesus be your peace and strength and comfort in this moment. Isn't that our greatest need in moments of grief? And so it's kind of something of a prayer, but it's also a reminder to the person to turn to Christ who is sufficient in all things for His people. Jesus' weeping doesn't escape the attention of those who were there to grieve with Mary and Martha who had come from Jerusalem. We see two reactions from them. Let's look at verses 36 and 37. So the Jews were saying, see how He loved Him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Very interesting reactions. One group sees how profoundly Jesus loved Lazarus, that he would weep over his death. The other group, that's in verse 36, the other group in verse 37, I sense that they are the type of people who are seeking for a reason to doubt Jesus. Their words are almost sarcastic in nature. They're almost biting toward Jesus. They are openly mocking Jesus for being able to to heal the blind man in Jerusalem, which we saw back in chapter 9, but for now seeming powerless against death, or at least so they thought. Boy, are they in for a surprise. But what they fail to grasp is that whether Lazarus lives again or remains in the grave, whatever God ordains is good and just and right. The question is, which of these two groups do you fall into? The group that admires and, and, and is kind of taken back, shocked, and, and uh, just loves to see the tenderness of Jesus toward His people? Or the kind that would mock Jesus? Examine your hearts. If you're in the first group, rejoice. If you're in the second group, repent. What we must see in this passage is that we serve a God who cares deeply for His people. He knows what His people are feeling. He knows what it's like to feel grief, to feel sorrow. He's referred to as a man of many sorrows. He sympathizes with the weaknesses and the emotions of His people, and He calls them to find grace in Him in times of grief and trouble. He doesn't just leave His people to grieve 
on their own, to bear their own burdens, but he enters into their grieving with them and he has the power to do something about it. What an enormous contrast John has given us between Jesus and the imaginary mythical Greek gods who had no sympathy and no concern for people who grieve. Jesus is better. Jesus is superior in every way to every and any idol that you can possibly imagine. He's better than any false conception of God that man with his own imagination comes up with. Jesus is filled with compassion when we need it. Jesus enters into our sorrows and our burdens with us when we need Him to. And only Jesus can give us sustaining grace to endure and to deal with grief and sorrow in a way that not only pleases God, but also glorifies God. Friends, let us see and remember the compassion that Jesus has for His people. As illustrated in this passage, and let us never forget that we're, when we're in times of grief and sorrow, we can draw close to Christ. He calls us to Himself. And we can be confident that He can sympathize with our weaknesses, just as His Word says, and completely trust the fact that when His people grieve, even then, He's with us. And even then, He is sufficient for everything we need, including the grace to endure through the hardest times of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage. We thank You for sending Jesus to reveal You, to reveal Your emotions, to reveal the way You feel toward things that gods of our imagination would be indifferent toward. Thank You for showing us Your compassion. Thank You for showing us who You are in Christ Jesus. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would teach us to lean on these truths. We pray that You would plant these truths deep within us so that when times of trial and sorrow burdens and grieving come, we may have these anchors set in our hearts. We pray, O oh Lord, that You would teach us to be more like Christ. Teach us to be compassionate toward those who are grieving. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we do this, that Your light would shine. So we pray for opportunities to share the Gospel, to shine Your light. And we pray that You would cement these truths in our minds to cling to in times of trouble and tribulation, that Jesus would be glorified in us in those times. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. 
If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.